Welcome to Good Girls Talk About Sex. I am sex and intimacy coach Leah Carey, and this is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. If you spend time thinking about gaming, fruit snacks, or ADHD, you may already know today's guest. You can find them on Twitch, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and more under the handle Katie Osaurus. When I posted in my Instagram stories that I had just recorded an interview with Katie Osaurus, one of my followers reached out to say he and his partner were freaking out with excitement because they love Kate's content. By the way, are you following me on Instagram or Twitter? I'm at Good Girls Talk on both. So Kate reached out to me recently to ask, since I'd been addressing disability in sex, would I consider talking about neurodiversity in sex? Not only was the answer a hell yes on its own terms, but the timing was remarkable because that same week, my primary care physician had suggested to me that I should get tested for ADHD. As I record this, I was just diagnosed two weeks ago. I'm still very much in the learning curve of what that means for me and how to deal with it. This conversation with Kate has been really helpful in confirming for me some of the places that I need to look. But rather than talking a lot more, let's get into this fascinating interview. Kate is a 33-year-old non-binary person. They describe themselves as white, though they're adopted, so they don't necessarily know that's true, bisexual and demisexual. They are ethically non-monogamous with two partners and grew up in the Catholic Church. Kate describes their body as average. I'm so pleased to introduce Kate. Kate, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to talk to you. When you reached out, you said all these things that I was like, oh, we definitely need to talk. So thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, I'm really excited to be here. This is a, a new type of interview for me, so I'm very excited. Yes. Um, so let's start where I start every interview, which is what is your first memory of sexual pleasure? Uh <laughs> my first memory of sexual pleasure is one of my also funniest stories um because it is it is how i realized that i was kinky Ooh. Uh, because yeah this is like a whole thing like i've been kinky since i was like seven years old i love and, like, it it's like a whole thing um we were watching meet me in st louis 
And there, because I love, oh, wait, there's more. Okay. Uh, but in Meet Me in St. Louis, there's a scene where Judy Garland is getting like laced into a corset and it's like this whole thing. And it's yeah. like, it's not like a kinky scene, but like if you're a kid and you've never like seen anything like that before, I was like, oh, what's this? And I started feeling kind of funny. And I was just like, huh. And I, re- I remember thinking that like I felt funny and I thought that I was like getting sick. Um, and then <laughs> as I got older, we had like, you know, internet, you know, like the old dial up internet and stuff. And, you know, I would go <laughs> on and I would look up corsets and then I would look up leather and I would look up pretty women in court and all this stuff. And I realized that, wow. oh, that feeling that I had when I was seven was like my first sort of experience with physical arousal from like a visual medium. Mm-hmm. And I still remember that because I, I, I just like, I don't know why, but that like is such a vivid memory for me. And then being able to connect to it later on in life and being ah, I've been this way my whole life. I'm not broken. There's nothing wrong with me. It's just how I am. It's been weirdly validating to have that memory. I love that so much. So as an adult, are you into bondage and leather? Oh, well, not leather, because leather okay. is is way too fucking hot, honestly. <laughs> like, it's just, I'm like, I'm not trying to sweat all night. Like, come on. I uh, wear very breathable bondage fabrics. But yes, I've I've become a, like a kink educator. I've gotten really, in, I actually literally just got back from a kink convention yesterday. Um, so yeah, it's, it's weird how uh, kinky my life has become kind of accidentally. <laughs> I love that. And it's so interesting that you say, like I realized it at seven or I had my first indication at seven because I remember one of the first kink classes I talked, I took, they talked about how often our kinks do show up as very, very young children. Yeah. We just don't have a language vocabulary or context for it at that point. Exactly. I also, I remember being, and I'm not sure of the age, but I think I was probably about nine. When I asked a friend to tie me up and spank me. <laughs> and oh my God. <laughs> she looked I was at me like I had to say the same thing. <laughs> she looked at me like I had six heads. <laughs> and, and you know, rightfully so, if you ask that of a kid who's right? not into that, <laughs> they're like, oh, excuse me, what? Yeah. But no, like, that's so funny that you said that, because I was going to be like, the next thing was like, and then I remember, like, I would construct these just ludicrous scenarios in which like, okay, you guys, I heard about this like really fun game that like these other kids at like this other school, that's like really far away. So like, you're probably <laughs> never going to hear about it. But like, they play it all the time. It seems like <laughs> I would like always like come up with these like, just like overly exaggerated and like over complex things, because I just wanted to like explore it. And I had this like weird notion for like getting tied up and like spanked and stuff and so like i remember doing that as a kid and that's so funny i was like okay i feel i feel very vindicated and less alone (laughs) (laughs) so that happens around seven do you have other memories of similar types of things that you now recognize as kinky that at the time you're just like oh i feel kind of funny I mean, I remember very specifically definitely wanting to get tied up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember very specifically, like, really wanting to know what a spanking felt like. Like, mm-hmm. I had this fascination with spanking. <gasps> Me too. And my parents didn't spank. So yeah, I thought exactly. it was, I thought that was the reason. 
Yeah. Like it was like a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but then, so this is where I bring down the room a little bit. Um, but recently I have started realizing that I think there was like more sexual trauma in my past than like I may have remembered. Mm-hmm. And so I actually don't have a lot of really specific memories for like a while. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yes. Um, but I do remember like there was always that thread of I knew that I wanted to be restrained. I knew that I wanted like physical sensation mm-hmm. on my body. Um, yeah, I think that's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So do you want to talk about those potential memories or those blank spots? I mean, I think oh, I'm not going to talk about them by talking about them. Yeah, because sure. the, the really interesting thing is realizing that there are blank spots. Mm-hmm. Like for a really long time, like I just didn't know that there were. Mm. And then when I started doing work to become a certified sex educator and I've started like educating and talking about kink and stuff, I would get questions about like, well, when kids do this thing or whatever. And I started realizing that like there were just places where I was like, huh, it's weird that I don't like ever think about that or that I haven't ever really spent time. And then I started realizing that oh, I haven't spent time around these thoughts because I've I've really like walled them up. I've mm-hmm. really like started actively trying to not think about them because like they cause me pain, they cause me harm. And so the fun, cool, cool thing is like you can fix that with therapy. And so I've been working on it for a while. Um, and it's it's just been really interesting sort of working through like a lot of it because a lot of it is just very much based in my very religious upbringing and that shame and that guilt surrounding like my body and, and like sexuality was like this bad, wrong thing. And I was really into masturbation. I was just fascinated with masturbating. Um, but I was also a very like smart kid. And so when I was in school, I went to Catholic school. And so they would have like the catechism and like the Bible and stuff just like around. And I remember very specifically looking at the catechism and being like, oh, masturbation is a sin. Like you're not allowed to masturbate. If you masturbate, you're going to go to hell. And I remember like being terrified because I was like, I like doing this thing so much. And I understood what I was doing. And I knew that I was actively choosing to like explore my body and masturbate. But also I was like, and God's going to find out and I'm going to get in so much trouble. And so there just wound up being this echo chamber of both like religious repression, but then also like at the familial level, just like a really unhealthy attitude towards like sex and and intimacy and that kind of thing, um, which I am still unpacking to this day. Yes. Um, but I'm I'm honestly grateful for it, you know, because it's it's one of those things where I struggled for so long. And then when I started doing this work and I, and I started really wanting to have conversations, I was like, but I've been there. I know what it's like to be the kid who's like terrified that somebody's going to find out that you mm. touch yourself. And I know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it's been, it's been really enlightening to know that there are so many people out there who feel the same things and go through the same things. And we all kind of carry that community Catholic guilt about the audacity of wanting to understand how your body works. How dare you? <laughs> so there's so much in there that I want to go back and talk about. Let's start with masturbation. How did you discover masturbation? And when? <laughs> this is a very good story. <laughs> okay. It's important to note that I still have it, which is which is awful. So I had this soccer ball pillow. It was like this round soccer ball pillow, and it was like pretty firm. And at some point, I realized that if I like ground on the soccer ball pillow, I could mm-hmm. come. 
I've, I have it. I still have it. It has come with, like, I don't use it anymore for that, to be clear. I just kept it because it's like a, like a very fond memory. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but when I was moving, uh, my partner was like going through some boxes and he pulled out the soccer ball and he went, what's this? And I went, uh, don't touch that. Just put that <laughs> down. That's fine. And he was like, it's a pillow. Why are you being so weird? And then I had to like, be like, well, when I was nine, uh, I used to hump that thing 12 times a day. Uh, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. I, and I remember I, I, I'm trying to trace it back because I remember that I had heard from a teacher that masturbation was a sin, but I didn't know what masturbation was. Like mm. I, we were just told that it was bad, but they didn't define it. So I like went to the dictionary. And because I of course up, you tell yes. a child they can't do something and yeah. they're like, what is and it? I was like, well, what is it? I want to know <laughs> yeah. what it is. It's so bad. And so I like looked at, I literally like went to the school library and like the big, like, you know, like dictionary, like on the stand. Yeah. And I like opened it up and I like looked up masturbation. I was like, oh, okay. So I was like, I was like piecing the puzzle pieces together and then at some point, my school got internet access before <laughs> this is like, cause I'm old. So this is before like everybody had internet at their house. And so I like, I remember like sneaking into the school computer lab to like, look like what is masturbation? And then I like figured that out. And then I was like, how to masturbate. <laughs> like, I was like, and I was really looking for like a, how I was looking for like a five step, like wiki guide. Yeah. Those didn't exist yet. And so like, I remember like I found some like just bananas porn site, just really graphic descriptions of like male masturbation. Huh. And I, and I remember being like, well, I can't, I can't, I don't have, I don't have a penis. I can't, I can't do this. Like how am I supposed? And so it was like, I spent like three or four years puzzling out the mystery of masturbation. And it was really funny. Wow. So how <laughs> old were you when that, when you went looking at the dictionary? Probably like eight or nine. Yeah. Like I've been humping my soccer ball for like a while. And oh, then so I realized like, oh, <laughs> this is the thing that I've already been doing. Oh, damn it. Nobody told me that that's what it was. I'm going to get in so much trouble with God. And I was yeah. just so mad because nobody had told me that pillows were were like part of it. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I mean, it is. It's such a disconnect that they were saying to you, don't do this thing. You're like, okay, what is the thing I'm not supposed to do? Oh, it's the thing I've already been doing for two, three years. Exactly. It was, yeah. it was so interesting. I just remember that just, just that moment where I was like, wait, so the pillow, no, oh no, I'm so in so much trouble. <laughs> I, I, I've been doing some work with another woman, um, a, another sex educator around how young kids begin masturbating, female children. And I went through the archives of this show and pulled out the ages that the various guests said that they started. And I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it was something like 8% began before the age of five, 25% began before the age of eight. And Something like 80% began before the age of 12. Yeah. <laughs> was, no, yeah. I totally believe that. Like that. Yeah. 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 Like this, this idea that girls don't explore their bodies while it is true for some people. And I don't want to dismiss that. It is also wildly inaccurate for, yeah. I think, a lot of people. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's predicated on this sort of like very like puritanical idea that if you know your body is going to somehow turn you into the sex crazed monster. It's like, no, like being informed about your body is like a safety thing. I Mm -hmm. think, you know, more than anything. And it's like, allows you, like, I don't, I have a whole rant about it, but it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) We can rant together, but let's keep going with your personal story. Uh, You've mentioned a few times that you grew up in a religious home. Let's first talk about your church, and then let's talk about your home. What kinds of messages were you hearing at church, including that masturbation is bad and you shouldn't do it, but we're not going to tell you what it is? Man, it's so... The immediate one, I'm trying to do this, like, not overthink my answers, because I always overthink. But the immediate one that popped into my head when you asked that question was the terrible sin of abortion. Mm. Because we had a, uh, our our parish priest was, like, obsessed with abortion in a way where, like, he figured out a way to talk about brazen women and abortions in, like, any situation. Like, I remember my babysitter got married. And we got invited to the wedding because she'd been my babysitter for years and years. And at her wedding, the priest in the, you know, speechy part literally found a way to be like, and now that you're married and started talking about the terrible sin of abortion at her wedding. And I remember my, even my mom, who's like very conservative and very, she was like, that was inappropriate. Like he (laughs) did not need to bring that up then. And so I remember very early on, like sex was a fearful thing. It was this thing where like, if you have sex, you're going to get married and you can't have an abortion because if you have an abortion, you will go to hell and you will go to hell so fast. Mm -hmm. And so I remember just sort of like living in in this very like strange place where I, I didn't really understand my body. I didn't really know that I was allowed to understand my body. And I was just hearing over and over and over again that like, as a woman, it is my job to get married and have babies But even as a kid, I knew I did not want kids. Like, Mm -hmm. I have always known that, like, kids are, like, not – I love kids. I love other people's kids. And my favorite part is when I hand them back. Yes. Like, I I just (laughs) – I just just don't have that instinct in me. Um, And just hearing over and over and over that it's, like, the woman's duty to, like, get married and raise a family and and all of the stuff. Like, I just always felt, like, a little bit of out of of place, a little bit weird, a little bit, you know, am I the only one who feels like this? And then when I started realizing that I was attracted to all genders, then it was like, oh, God, now I'm gay and I <laughs> masturbate and I don't want babies. Like, God wants me to just fucking he does. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And so that was like the more that I learned about myself and the more time that I spent understanding myself and understanding my body and learning about my needs and my wants and my desires, the farther and farther away I got from this idea of God and religion, because I just kept hearing over and over and over that there wasn't a place for me. Like I didn't belong. I wasn't right. I did not grow up in religion. And so every time I hear these stories, they just like the heat (laughs) rises for me. Um, Isn't it one of the sort of precepts of Christian slash Catholic thinking that God doesn't make mistakes? Yes. But also, there's a loophole in that. God doesn't make mistakes. Depending on on your sort of specific brand of Catholicism or on what you're taught and, and even just Christianity as a whole, a lot of times the conversation is God didn't make mistakes. 
So God made you gay on purpose. If you even get to the point where being gay is not a choice, because that's a whole other conversation where a lot of times it is. But then the conversation becomes, well, God doesn't make mistakes. So God made you as you are. And he made you this way to challenge you because it is a sin to be gay. So we can hate the sin. We can love the sinner, but we have to hate the sin. And so God is calling you to a life of celibacy. God is calling you to a life of sexual dissatisfaction. God is challenging you with this because this is part of your personal sort of mission and plan with God is that you cannot act on these urges or then you will be sinning and therefore then you will burn in hell for all eternity. But he didn't make any mistakes. It's just you are going to actively choose to walk counter to the path that he has deigned for you, which is one where you can be secretly gay. Just shut up and don't talk about it because it makes us uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing that sucks, honestly, and like I've, I've been sitting here going like, oh, I'll be careful about what you say. But I was like, the thing is, is like I've gotten so far away that like I don't even know if that's the messaging anymore. Uh-huh. I just, you know what I mean? Like, because I don't care to. Like, I don't care to go back to an organization that so wholeheartedly just told me over and over and over that I was not worthy and I was not right and I did not belong. Mm. And so, you know, it's like really interesting because I'm like, I wonder, like, I wonder what what it is now today. But also, like, I I just sort of don't care. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So <laughs> I, that sounds like a really healthy <laughs> attitude. <laughs> it's a boundary. It's a boundary I set for myself. I was yeah. like, if you're not going to have healthy attitudes and I need those healthy attitudes to feel okay and safe in my body, then my boundary is you don't get to hang out with me. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's pretty easy. Yeah. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my particular situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There is no single answer that's right for everyone, so I'm going to help you discover what's right for you. And we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating and exhausting. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM, exploring consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring your sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life. And together, we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your discovery call, visit leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. 
That's leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. So what were you hearing at home about sex and sexuality and being female? Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) I need to preface this with an explanation. My mom was, at the time, a state's attorney. And so my mom's job was prosecuting uh, uh, people for the state. My mom's specific job was prosecuting sex crimes, specifically against children. So I grew up in a house where every single day my mom would come home and tell me stories about like the, you know, the four-year-old who had gotten raped or the baby who had gotten horrifically abused or, you know, whatever over and over and over. So we didn't have conversations about sex Mm. because I think my mom thought, and I have spent a really long time resenting my mom for this. And then recently I realized that like, she did this, I think to protect me. Mm But I think my mom thought that if she didn't talk about sex, if she didn't acknowledge sex, like if she didn't really talk about sex as a thing that could be done for pleasure, then I wouldn't put myself in a situation where I could be in danger. Mm -hmm. I think that was the thought process. But what it actually meant was that we just really didn't have conversations. I had like a very cursory sort of like birds and the bees, you know, when I got my first period she kind of explained like what, what that deal was and and all of this stuff. But all of this was very much grounded in both my mom's experience growing up in a very Catholic family and sort of like sharing, like sending that knowledge down to me, you know, marriages between a man and a woman, we have sex so we can make a baby. Like, Mm -hmm. and I remember having fights, you know, like when I was a teenager being 14, 15, 16 and being like, okay, but like, does marriage have to be between a man and a woman? Like, why can't two women get married? Why can't two men get married? Why can't three women get married? Like, if you're talking about like love and commitment, why does it have to look this certain way? Well, because God. Okay. Well, if we take God out of the equation, then you know what I mean? So it's like this yeah. whole thing. And then the second side of that was like, my mom has a massive confirmation bias towards like, a lot of people are predators. A lot of people are dangerous. A lot Mm -hmm. like men, especially like are, you know, you can't trust the babysitter. You can't trust the whatever, you know, like they're all rapists, all of them. And so there was a lot of not speaking. And I think the silences often like spoke a lot louder than what we actually talked about. But like I said earlier, like I'm still really unpacking that and unpacking how, damaging it can be to just not have conversations because you're uncomfortable. Yeah. Because especially, I'm sorry, I'm just going on and on and on. No, this Um, is so good. But so I, I'm neurodivergent and I didn't know that I was neurodivergent until I was literally three years ago on my 30th birthday, I found out. But one of the things that neurodivergent people really excel at is pattern matching and like pattern recognition, even in life. Like I'm not talking about like red, yellow, blue. I'm talking about oh, we don't talk about this thing and we never talk about this thing. So this thing must be bad. That is pattern recognition, you know? And so unlearning how much unspoken communication was going on in my household was fascinating. Like, Mm. like it's, and now I'm just very interested in it in like just like a purely clinical sense. I'm like, this is so interesting. My upbringing was so strange. Um, And so, yeah, it's, it was, it was a really weird really weird learning about sex as a kid. Yeah. So it sounds like you grew up with a lot of messaging about sex is bad, sex is scary, sex is 
evil even, presumably until the moment you get married, and then it's going to be wonderful and perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> that That's its own whole drama. Um, but you also are recognizing that you're interested in other activities and other genders than the one mm. that, quote, you're supposed to. Yeah. When did that awareness come up for you? When I was 11. I remember very specifically, 11 was the first time that I went to my mom and I said, I think I'm gay. Mm. My mom basically said, no, you're not. Like, that mm. was the conversation. I said, mom, like, I like you know how some people like boys and some people like girls? Because we had had the gay talk. Like, we had had, my mom at least had the foresight to, to just sort of, like, introduce the concept of being gay. But it was always in conversation. But, and we really can't support that lifestyle because it's not what God wants for us, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember being like, mom, I think I'm one of those people. And my mom said, no, you're not. And so I just kind of went off and I was like, okay, well, my mom knows me and she's my mom and she's in chart, you know? And so then I was 13 and I said it again. And then I was 14 and then I was 15 and then I was 16 and then I was 21 and then I was 25. And like, I I don't think it was really until I was, I want to say 27 or 28 when I think my mom, to her credit, has done a lot of work to shift her sort of like preconceived and like just internalized biases about homosexuality, LGBT in general, um, she's just now kind of gotten to the point where she's cool with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's cool with it in a very much like, and we're not going to talk about it like mm. sort of way, but she recognizes, you know, she will say like, Oh, my daughter is bisexual. Um, that kind of thing. So she has grown a lot. Um, but I remember very specifically just being told multiple times throughout my childhood, like, no, you are not gay. Hmm you are going through a phase or you're just mixing up friendship and, and feelings and you're wrong about what you are feeling. You are not this way. Yeah. And that has informed so much of who I am as a person that we don't even have time to unpack all that. <laughs> I'm interested that you now identify as bisexual, but you were saying to your mom, I'm gay. I didn't know that there were other terms. Like, I just thought it was either you were straight or gay, you know? And it's the same way where, and I know I said this before we started recording, um, but I didn't realize that there were like such specific terms to describe me because in reality, I think a better term for what I am is pansexual because I am attracted to all genders. I just grew up with the label bi as like, that was the only option. You were gay, you were straight. And then there was this third (laughs) magical option that kind of fit me more, which was bi. Um, and so now I always say I'm bi in that I am attracted to men and any other gender representation that there may be in the world. Like, that's kind of how I use my bi is like, there's two, but it's one and then a big one. Yeah. Um, but like, I think pan is actually far more of a correct description. Uh, but at some point, I just got too tired to try and win every <laughs> argument there is to be won. <laughs> It's so funny. Our our stories are very similar because I grew up knowing that straight was okay and gay was okay. In my home, gay was always going to be okay. I had no idea there was a third option. So as soon as I discovered I was attracted to women, I was like, oh, I guess that means I must be gay because people who are attracted to the same sex are gay. And yeah. then at some point I discovered bi and I was like, oh my God, that's me. 
And now the whole pansexual thing, I also am attracted to all genders, but I'm so tied into this word bi because it was the yeah. first thing that felt like, oh, somebody sees me. So I define it as I am attracted to people whose bodies look like mine and people whose bodies don't look like mine. <laughs> yeah. But like, I think you said, you just said something so powerful is like when you don't have the words, that first time that you feel seen, mm-hmm. like the first time you hear the word. Um, and I remember too, I think part of it is that I'm also very much demisexual. Like I cannot do the like, oh, that celebrity is so hot. I'm sexually attracted to them. I was like, it doesn't work like that. And growing up when you're a kid, you know, and everybody's like got the crushes on like the Jonas Brothers or, you know, whatever. I remember being like, I'm, I was lying. It was NSYNC for me. It wasn't the Jonas Brothers. You know, it was way later. It was, I was like, why? I said Jonas Brothers. Like, I'm trying to pretend like I'm not as old as I am. I was fucking NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys. And there was like a, you, you had the NSYNC girls and the Backstreet Boys girls. And there was like, not, they did not cross those teams. It was like West Side Story shit. Um, but like, but that was the thing is like, and I remember being like, I don't get it. I don't get what what I'm supposed like, cool. It's a picture. I don't know that guy. I don't, I don't know this person. He might be a jerk. He might be really mean to his dog. Like you don't know. And so then once I sort of found the label Demi, I went, Oh my fucking shit. Like, yes, that it, that's me. Like more than the buy more than anything else. That is who I am is like, I'm a person who has to know you before I can be sexually attracted to you. And realizing that and realizing that that is like a normal, okay way to be has been so powerful for me. You know, it's it's like I just came back from a kink convention and it's really hard, like watching all these people do like pickup play. Yeah. And then I'm just like, yeah, this is fun. Uh, but tell me your hopes and dreams. And can we date for five weeks first? <laughs> What's up? Pickup play. Let's go. I love you know, it. Yeah. Um, but but knowing that and, and knowing that that is that is like a, a really fundamental part of who I am has really, I think, given me the freedom to feel seen, like you were saying, Mm -hmm. feel seen, feel validated, be like, oh, there is a place for me. It's just taken me a while to find the words so I can I can yell for all the other demisexuals in the room and we can hang out, you know? Yeah. So uh, different people, as with any term in the field of gender and sexuality, different people define terms different ways. So some people talk about demisexuality in terms of how you needing to feel connected before you feel attraction. Others talk about it in terms of their level of um, sexual appetite. Mm-hmm. So when you say demisexual, where do you fall on the libido scale? Both. Okay. <laughs> it is, that's why I love the term. Genuinely. It's used very much in like two sort of like completely different concepts, mm-hmm. but they both absolutely apply to me. Uh, and it's, it's a very common thing with neurodivergent people that their sexual desire is very, can be very peaks and valleys depending on like the situation and the conditions surrounding the desire that they're experiencing. And so that has always been a thing that I struggle with is like, I will be in the mood for weeks at a time and then I don't want to have sex for eight months. Like, mm. it, and it, there's no controlling it, there's no working through it. It's just, I am either deeply horny <laughs> or I would fuck off, let's watch Netflix, you know? Yeah. But then on the other side of it is also like the relationship aspect, which is also very much me is like, even in those moments where I'm very like fucking horny and I like want sex, I only want sex from people that I feel like a very strong emotional connection to and who are interesting and cool and fun. You know, I'm not going to go seek out a random hookup. 
Mm-hmm. So it's like, for me, it's it's very much like the perfect term because it's absolutely both things at the same time. And that's why I love it so much. <laughs> so um, I'm going to skip around in the timeline a little bit just because it feels appropriate. Uh, you mentioned before we started recording that you have two partners. Um, am I correct that they're both male? Yes. Bodied people? Okay. Yes. So how does this demisexuality play into having multiple partners. If you have those three weeks of high sex drive and you can play that out with both your partners and then you go through the eight months of let's cuddle, (laughs) how does that work with your partners? You know, I got really lucky in that both of my partners are also neurodivergent. My husband is autistic Um, and my other partner is, uh, ADHD. And so it's really nice because they both get it. And both of them have frankly, a much lower sexual desire spectrum, I think than I do. And so what I find is that sometimes what is hard is that they'll be on month six or seven of not being interested. Mm -hmm. And I'm the one being like, Hey, 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 can we like, can we, can we do a thing? Yeah. Can we do a thing? Um, But also uh, I've been with my husband for almost eight years and, you know, I think, you know, we started off kind of the the way that everybody starts off where, you know, you're having sex all the time. Um, And then I don't want to say everybody, but at least that's what I always do is I'm just banging constantly because I'm like excited and (laughs) like, you know, um, but I think like we've we've fallen into a very comfortable rhythm. And I think honestly, sometimes like it's a little too comfortable. Like mm-hmm. I like I kind of wish like we had more intimacy, but also honoring that in each other and being like, hey, I totally understand that you are in the sort of like low zone where you're not necessarily as interested. So I'm going to respect that. I'm not going to pressure you. I'm not going to put expectations on you. That has been really powerful is learning that I'm not going to disappoint anybody. I'm not a bad partner for honoring my needs. Um, And finding ways around it is also a thing because um, my second partner, Eric, I mean, we I don't feel bad about naming him because we talk about this all the time on our podcast. (laughs) we really struggle. And it's because of that is, is because of, we both have like a very, I think like low desire a lot of the time. And so like ways around it, you know, like we find clever and creative ways around it. Like a lot of times it it will involve like, you know, one of us masturbating, just sharing space with the Mm -hmm. other person, um, which can be as meaningful. Um, But recently I've started realizing I have a very specific definition of the type of intimacy that fulfills me. And that's really, really useful information to have. Because it means that I can say, okay, I need this specific thing to happen in order to feel connected, in order to feel intimacy in this way. And so it's been, I'm not going to say the easiest conversations to have all the time, um, but it's been really validating to just finally have partners in my life who don't pressure me and who don't look at me like I'm a quote unquote, bad wife or bad girlfriend or whatever, because I'm not in the mood all the time because I'm not a sex dispenser. Mm. And so that's, that's been really, I feel really lucky Mm -hmm. in that way, honestly. Like it's, it's one of my favorite things. Yeah. It's so much of what you just said is so amazing. Um, You said there are certain things that you need in order to feel intimacy. What are some of those things? I need... 
I need somebody inside of me. Like, honestly, like to put it as graphically as possible is like, I, I really need, like, I'm a, I'm a, in, in a kink way, I'm a switch is sometimes I like to be a top. Sometimes I like to be a bottom and it just kind of really depends on how my neurodivergency is doing that day. Um, but for me, it is a penetrant credit. Okay. You know what I'm trying to say? Uh, uh, thing, hands, fate, whatever, whatever it may be, but that's what I need. So it doesn't I, need to be a penis, but it does no. need to be some type of penetration by yeah. the partner. Like, honestly, listen, mom, if you're listening, just pause for a second. But uh, <laughs> like, I really love fingering. Like, mm-hmm. I just, I, it is like, I would rather get fingered than have sex. Like 99% of the time. Um, because it is like P and V sex, I should clarify. Yeah. Um, said, said the person who teaches sex on the internet. Um, <laughs> but for me, it's just, it's much more intimate. And I think it's because like, you can usually like figure out a way to like look them in the eye and like, mm. like talking and having like a conversation at the same time. And so that's really, really important to me is kind of that like feeling inside more because I'm also a very just like touchy person in general. And so like, I always want to be touched. I always want to be cuddled. I always want like head scratches. And so that is like a very different type of intimacy than the sexual act of like fingering or like P and V insertable sex, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You also said that um, when you and your husband are, sort of in different places or when you're both in the low, low libido place, you find other ways of being intimate. And so what are some of those things that you do? We go to escape rooms. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the thing is, is for me, like I, it is, it is really as somebody who was previously in a relationship where I was pressured into sex all the time. It is really, really important to me that I I don't feel like that. And also that I never make my partners feel like that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so one of the like really big ways that I have realized that I can share intimacy is it doesn't have to be a sex act. It's just about spending time and feeling valued and seen and appreciated and like a good partner. I swear I'm not trying to get your podcast a sponsorship, but like HelloFresh has like literally <laughs> changed our relationship. Like I'm I'm not even really? joking. Like it's a real thing is because I went through this really long period of like really not feeling connected with either of my partners. Like I was like, how do I have two partners and I'm having less sex than I've ever had in my entire life? Like how does this work? <laughs> um, but I got a subscription to HelloFresh and I started making dinner for my partners every night. And it's been wonderful because I get this moment mm-hmm. of like, I feel like I'm doing this nice thing for them and I'm like honoring, like, and I love to care for people. Mm-hmm. I like to take, and it's like an act of service, um, you know, and then like we sit and we talk about our days and like what happened and we have like, just like this really like intimate thing. And it's been wonderful. Like, and it, and it's literally because I like just fucking subscribe to HelloFresh, like, you know, <laughs> and so it's like, and yeah, and sometimes it's, it's like, you know, clever and creative sex stuff. Like I'll be like, Hey, can you pull my hair and choke me a little bit while I touch myself if you're not feeling up for sex? And like mm-hmm. that works. 
But honestly, like a lot of the time for me, it's, it's far, far more about the time and feeling valued and appreciated more than anything else. Um, and so I'm like, if I can make you feel valued and appreciated by, you know, spending an hour cooking dinner and then I get to like share this time with you, it really honestly, like I feel closer to both of my partners than I have in a really long time. And it's because like, I found this thing that I can do that sort of like centers me and it's fucking hello fresh. Who the fuck knew? I don't know. <laughs> Um, so you've mentioned kink several times. Is kink always a sexual experience for you? Or is kink sometimes its own experience that doesn't result in sex Thank you penetration orgasm? I fucking love that question so goddamn much because my answer is no, I have a really weird uh, relationship to kink. I deal with a lot of chronic pain. Um, and I also have depression on top of ADHD. And I have a condition called myoclonic dystonia, um, which basically means that I twitch, like it's like a thing. Um, but it also means that I have a lot of muscle spasms that you can't necessarily see on the surface, but it does mean that I'm in constant pain all the time, especially mm. my hands, my back, and like a lot of my joints just hurt all the time. Um, and it sucks. And one of the reasons why I love kink so much is because my relationship to the pain changes. And I use it in a very, I don't want to say therapeutic, but it is like, it is a therapeutic yeah. methodology that I use um, because I'm a heavy impact bottom mm-hmm. I, and I play at a pretty high level. Like, and that's not a humble brag. That's just a fact because my nerves are all decked up. And so I have to get hit really hard to feel anything. Yeah. Um, but most of the time for me, kink is not sexual. Kink is, is a pain management tool. It is a, a neurodivergency management tool. It is a way to get my head on straight and to feel connected to my partner. But I don't necessarily want or expect sex at the end. Um, sometimes I literally just want to be hit. And it sounds really funny to like look at a partner and you say like, hey, can you hit me to show me that you love me? Um, but thankfully, again, I have two like really understanding partners who get it and understand that like a lot of times I'm saying I'm really in pain. Can you help? And this is how you can help. Yeah. But yeah, it's 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 honestly probably like 80 20. Like I think 80% of the time I'm doing kink because I enjoy the sensation. It puts me in my head, it puts me in my body. It helps with my pain, it helps with uh, like to certain some extent like my trauma even. And then 20% of the time I'm just, you know, at the end of it I'm like and please wreck me up. <laughs> <laughs> Ever expect it's nice if it happens but if it doesn't like hey at least i got beat yeah <laughs> uh, for listeners who are interested in this topic also check out the interview with kaz um, i believe the title of that episode is pain and pleasure come together um because we we talk about some of these same things and I'm also I'm thinking back to a, f- a conversation I had with a friend that not on the podcast, just a, you know, conversation out in the wild, where she was talking to me about how for her kink is an emotional management tool. Because yeah. she has a really hard time crying or getting angry or like expressing those bigger emotions because of her own past trauma. And so when she gets heavily beat, that is what allows her to actually get the tears going. And then she can have the full letdown that she needs. And that may sound really awful to some people, but to her, it is incredibly healing. Yeah. I was like, that 
makes perfect sense to me because I do the same thing. I was like, yeah, yeah. that's that's a valid thing. Good on mm-hmm. your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready for easy access to birth control? Me too. That's why I'm so excited about Planned Parenthood Direct, Planned Parenthood's app. You can use the app to get birth control prescribed and mailed right to your home or sent to your pharmacy for pickup. You can also communicate directly with licensed Planned Parenthood doctors and nurses and learn about different types of birth control to figure out which one is right for you because we're all different. Insurance isn't required and birth control starts at only $20 a pack. In some states, you can even get UTI treatment and emergency contraception through the app. You can download the Planned Parenthood Direct app from the App Store or Google Play Store. It's currently available in 39 states plus DC, and if it's not in your state yet, sign up to be notified of new state launches on PlannedParenthoodDirect.org. Links are in the show notes. Accessible and affordable, convenient birth control is huge. So if you use birth control, download Planned Parenthood Direct today. never want a guest on this show to be surprised or upset by the questions I ask. So I require informed consent before we begin an interview. Either they've listened to an episode or we've had a detailed conversation about the topics we're going to cover. And if I ask a question they're not comfortable with, they know we can pause the interview to renegotiate. The same should be true in our bedrooms. We should know what we're getting into before we begin and how to make adjustments if it's not going the way we expected. But it's rare for anyone to teach us how to have those conversations. That's just one of the reasons I love Dipsy so much. In their audio erotica stories, you hear characters having explicit consent conversations that are sexy and don't kill the mood. Because a consent conversation can be hella sexy when it's done well. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories designed to turn you on. And many, if not most, include some consent conversation woven into the story. So this is the perfect way to learn by listening and giving yourself a happy ending at the same time. Dipsy releases new content every week, so there are constantly new fantasies for you to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash goodgirls. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash goodgirls. That link is in the show notes, so go to dipseastories.com slash goodgirls. Thank you.
episode is sponsored by Kendra. Kendra is a self-care company that makes estrogen-free essentials to support people who experience the hormonal changes of menopause. Their best-selling product is a daily vaginal lotion that comes with a revolutionary reusable applicator and dramatically relieves vaginal dryness. This intimate lotion is formulated with skin-soothing humectants and critical vitamins like niacinamide that can improve the appearance of inflammation and rebuild moisture over time. Plus, after just three days of use, 80% of users said it feels like natural lubrication and reported improvement in discomfort during intimacy. So try out Kendra using code GOODGIRLS20 for 20% off your first purchase. That link and code are in the show notes on the app you're listening on right now. And please let me know. I'd love to hear how it works for you. So you've also mentioned neurodivergency a bunch. And I know that there's more here because this is why you first reached out to me was to talk about this. And I don't really even know the questions to ask. So instead, I'm just going to open the floor and say, please tell me all the things that you want to tell me. So, um, I mean, so basically, I'm just got my certification as a certified sex educator. Um, and the reason why I decided to do it was because I, well, I, I have a TikTok where I talk about sex and ADHD all the time. Um, that's kind of how the whole thing got started. But what I realized was more seriously was that there have been a lot of times in my life where because of my neurodivergency, I've put myself in danger and I've gotten hurt and I have had some pretty bad shit happen to me because the conversations about how neurodivergency can change your relationship with kink and can change your relationship with sex and it can change your relationship with relationships in general was just not being had at the level to where I knew anything about it. I had no idea that your sexual desire could be impacted with ADHD. I had no idea that orgasms could be impacted by ADHD and depression, just on and on and on. And the more I started sort of like pulling up this thread, you know, the whole sweater sort of started to go in that I was like, holy shit, there is so much here. This is so interesting. And I was like, well, if nobody's talking about it, I guess I'm going to. And so I've really started um, educating a lot about neurodivergency, specifically in kink. Um, because sex, sex as a whole is a giant thing. Um, but I think kink is a little bit more manageable. And it's been really interesting to see just the overwhelming amount of support from the community. I'm like teaching classes at like conventions and stuff now, um, which was so, so gratifying. Um, there's honestly, there's so much to talk about. There's just so much, especially in conversation with understanding your brain, because everybody's neurodivergency, everybody's mental illness, everybody's any brain is is different. And so, you know, if you know one autistic person who is into kink, you know one autistic person and their needs may be very different than some other person, you know. And so opening those conversations and and really starting to say like, hey, it is okay to advocate for yourself. It is okay to have to use separate systems and tools and all sorts of different things in order to have the most safe and rewarding experience. That's kind of what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to change the world. I'm just trying to let people know it's okay to keep post-it notes in your backpack if you need notes. (laughs) (laughs) A really good example that I I always sort of give when I'm I'm doing this kind of stuff um, is I talk about 
time blindness is such a thing where we like make jokes and we say, oh, it's so funny. Like, oh, I lose track of time and I get distracted and I get hyper-focused and oh, I'm always five minutes late to the party. And like, that's great. And that's fine. But if you have time blindness and you're a heavy impact bottom and you think that you've been playing for 10 minutes and in reality it has been 40 or 50 or an hour Like I have permanent physical damage that has happened because I didn't understand that my brain perceives time differently. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And it is part of neurodivergency. And it's not like a cutesy, like, oh, we're always five minutes late. It is no, like we can quantifiably say that people with a neurodivergency, like have a very interesting relationship to time. But again, that's me. I lose track of time. Some people are very like spot on to times, you know, and it, and it can go in a lot of different directions. But that's a big thing. It's like safety concerns. And with time blindness, and I'm just going to harp on this because I just think it's a really good example. But time blindness can also mean if we have a conversation yesterday, depending on what happens today, that conversation can feel like it was a million years ago, or it can feel like it was five minutes ago. Now, if we had a conversation about, say, oh, I don't know, your boundaries or your likes or your dislikes six months ago, that can be an eternity to somebody, Mm -hmm. right? And so advocating for really specific communication and checking in before anything starts to happen, because it may change, it can change on the day to day. But Mm -hmm. feeling like you had a conversation, you know, if, if you look at me and you say, I really feel like we need to have more intimacy and I'm, I'm really feeling disconnected from you. I can go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. I told tomorrow we will totally smash tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But then tomorrow to me feels like it's an impossibly long way away and I don't have to plan it. I don't, you know what I mean? And so it can just, mm-hmm. it can spiral into this absolutely harmful uh, situation where like one partner or both partners are really being impacted by this this understanding of time and this sense of time and how time works. And that's just one thing. That's just one Mm -hmm. facet, you know? Um, And then you start talking about stuff like rejection, sensitive dysphoria, which isn't recognized by science as like an official diagnostic criteria. But when we say rejection, sensitive dysphoria, we're actually talking about sort of a group of trauma symptoms that we can sort of like point to and say, all of these trauma symptoms sort of manifest in this thing that we've like made a term for. So it's like a little shorthand for like a bunch of different trauma symptoms. But I don't know that term. Can oh, you it's great. Yeah. Just, yeah. So rejection, sensitive dysphoria is, again, it's a sort of colloquial term for a bunch of different trauma symptoms that basically show up as extreme people pleasing and an extreme fear of rejection. And so the the example that I always use is a person who doesn't deal with rejection-sensitive dysphoria. If they got an email from their boss and the email just said, we need to meet on Thursday, period, they would go, oh, we need to meet on Thursday. And that's great and whatever. A person with rejection-sensitive dysphoria who gets that email with the period instead of the exclamation point or without the explanation of why they're meeting or whatever can instantly spiral in a way that if you don't have it, you go, you are being fucking ridiculous. But if you do deal with rejection, sensitive dysphoria, it's awful. Cause I, and I do, you know, and it's, Mm -hmm. I'm going to get fired. My boss hates me. I'm losing my job. I'm going to be homeless. I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible employee, you know, and then you go to the meeting on Thursday and your boss goes, I just wanted to let you know, we got a really nice compliment about you. Good job. And you go, you know, and then, (laughs) but you've spent three days agonizing and spiraling and whatever, And so for a lot of people, it shows up as people-pleasing. Like, you will do anything, anything 
to avoid those uncomfortable feelings of like being rejected up to and including saying yes, when you actually want to say no, doing stuff that you don't want to do sexually or otherwise, not feeling like you can articulate your needs. Every slight, every rejection, every whatever is a huge deal. And going out of your way to avoid it can really put you into dangerous circumstances. And again, that's something that I have personally done. I have done a lot of kink scenes that I didn't want to do. I have played with a lot of people that I didn't want to play with because I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I didn't want to be the, you know, stick in the mud and and that kind of thing. Um, And so unlearning that, well, first learning that that's a thing that not everybody deals with, but then also unlearning that and, and, and really getting to the root of those different traumas and saying, okay, where is this coming from? Like, why am I like this? Like, let's understand ourselves better in order to support ourselves later on down the line. This is so interesting, partially because I'm recognizing myself in so much. I've actually had three different people say to me over the past year, have you ever been diagnosed with ADHD? <laughs> and I'm like, no, because I'm like, like, I have all these ideas about myself. But then when they start talking about actual symptoms and manifestations, I'm like, oh, shit, I actually recognize a lot of that. Yeah. And I, I recognize a lot of what you just said as well. So let's dive back into your relationships with your partners. How are those relationships set up? Are you cohabiting with either or both of them? How are you splitting your time with them, et cetera? Oh, that's a great question. Um, So I'm married, like I said, I'm married to my husband and then I have another partner as well. Mm-hmm. My husband also has another partner. Um, And so my husband and I live together and then my uh, other partner has an apartment. But also, as it happens, he is the co-host of my podcast. And so he's over at our house like every single day. Uh, my husband's partner, I don't see her as much only because like she has, she runs like this really cool, fabulous business. And so she's off doing that a lot of times. Um, but honestly, like the, it's a really boring answer is we usually just go, Hey, do you want the house tonight? Do you need the house tonight? Like, what do you want to do? Like, that's fine. And also sometimes like there have been, you know, nights where, one or both it has happened that both of our partners on the same night are both having like a really bad like anxiety attack or depression or something and so we just like hey fuck it we have we have guest rooms like let's just all get together and so like we you know like somebody will be up in the guest room somebody will be in the master and and that's just we we really are pretty flexible about it only because like i think we got really lucky in that we're all really committed to communicating and negotiating equitably and so making mm. sure that everybody feels like seen and heard I think at some point I would like it if we had like a cool polycule house. Yeah. Um, but also because my husband's partner and my other partner are not in a relationship. They're not dating. They just like know each other because they know us. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we're not like all dating each other, it's a little bit like, would it be weird if we all live together? I don't know. So, <laughs> so, but yeah. So do your other partner and your husband's other partner also have other partners or is it a closed four person? It's closed, but only because like it, that's just the situation right now. Like I would be mm-hmm. totally fine if, you know, either of our partners, mm-hmm. I guess, should wanted to, but like just right now, like 
I have said this very publicly. Like I was like, I feel like I have met my people. You know, it's like, I feel like I have Mm -hmm. found these like two incredible people that I just want to spend the rest of my life with. And so I'm open in that. Like, I think, you know, if I met somebody like super cool and like, we wanted to like hang out, get to know each other, like sure on the table. Um, But I'm not like actively, especially with how Demi I am. I'm not actively. Oh no, I I need seven more people in the club or anything. (laughs) (laughs) And being the kind of demisexual who needs really close uh, or who needs to feel close with somebody before you engage. I imagine you're not out trolling for other partners. I'm terrible at trolling. I'm, I can't, I'm so bad at it. Like I'm laughably bad at it. Like I don't even know how I wound up married because I just, I just go to parties and I just stand in the corner and go, Oh God. Hey, Oh God. There's sure is a lot of noise here. Oh boy. Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free, and one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one, take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag me in your post, and if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. Word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two, don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex? I get it. Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. Send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, if you have the resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation you can cancel at any time. Plus, I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing. There is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you, whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener. I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. How did you discover your non-binaryness and what does that mean to you? Oh, man. I discovered it very late in the game. In fact, it's still sort of an identity that I'm actively working through. But for a really long time, I'd always heard it was, I mean, it was sort of with the Demi thing as well. Um, But I'd always just sort of like heard people talk about being a woman or being a girl or being a boy or whatever. And I was like, I don't feel like that. 
I don't feel like a woman. I don't even know what that means. I cannot conceptually understand what that means. Like, I know that I have ample bosoms and, you know, a vulva. <laughs> um, but I also know that I feel an immense amount of joy when I'm doing drag. And I feel fucking hot as shit and empowered. And just the fact that I cannot on command grow a luxurious beard just fills me with disappointment every day. Um, but I just started realizing that I was like, I don't feel like a gender. I don't feel like I'm I'm tied to womanhood in this like particular way. Like if a magic fairy came down tomorrow and was like, you can't be a girl anymore. You have to be a boy. I'd be like, fuck it, red. Do I get a beard? Um, because it's just not part of my identity. Like it's just really not. And the more I started thinking about that, the more I started sort of delving and exploring, I realized that there was like sort of this entire community of people who feels similarly. And so the way that I always describe it is like, I don't feel like a man. I don't feel like a woman. I feel like Kate. I feel like myself. I feel like I am living my life in this body with my own experiences. And yes, I have what people would commonly call female parts, but I'm more than that. I'm more than my gender. I'm not defined by it necessarily. And so I really just like the idea of opening that conversation and saying like, well, what does gender mean? Like, why do we have to pick? Why do we have to choose? Um, and so I've been, I've been just sort of like really unpacking that lately about like, what does gender mean? And, and what does having pretty privilege mean in conversation with being perceived as a woman or whatever? And, and it's been, it's been really enlightening. It's been really enlightening and it's been really educational, both in, in allowing me to sort of like unpack a lot of my own like internalized biases about gender and sexuality, but also it's just given me a lot more freedom to just wear whatever the fuck I want and not worry about it, you know? <laughs> I love that. And now it's time for the lowdown. The things we're dying to know, but would usually be too polite to ask any good girl. Do you have sex during your period? Not P and V sex. Uh-huh. But I will, but I will do sexual things during my period because I'm a horny, horny boy during my period. <laughs> so why not the P and V part? Honestly, because I have really expensive sheets and I'm lazy. <laughs> I love so, that answer. Uh, so gen- and also, I have I have a IUD, and so I have horrific fucking rain of blood periods. I have the worst fucking periods, like bleeding through a fucking ultra tampon in in 15 minutes. Periods. Wow. Um, and so I'm just like, I'm not here to mess with that. But if you want to make me come and it helps my cramps, so I'm not going to say no, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, what's the approximate number of sex partners you've had? My, okay, my real answer is 11, but there's a, a asterisk in that I also spent a summer, well, five summers working as a professional orgy organizer. Um, <gasps> but I don't, I don't, so cool. I don't count, I don't count that because that was, that was, that was just, I was just at work. Yeah. <laughs> Did you participate in the orgies that you organized? Honestly, not usually. There were like a couple uh-huh. of times where like I would like jump in because something seemed like, oh, this is going to be like a really good story, you know. Um, but for the most part, I, I abstained because it felt unprofessional. <laughs> There's so much more there. Um, <laughs> have you ever had sex with someone with a different racial identity than your own? Oh, yeah. What's your favorite sex toy? Oh my God. Uh, this it's right here. I have it. This is so good for the, uh, oral fucking medium of your podcast. Uh, but it's the Eva 
It's the Dame Eva. It's the best okay. fucking $80 I ever spent in my entire fucking life. This changed wow. my sex life forever. I am obsessed with this fucking thing. Hot damn. Okay. Um, I will put a link into the show notes, but can you tell people? Yeah. So basically it's like uh it's like a little tiny mini bullet vibe, but it has like these flexible like wings attached to it. So how it works is you can put it on your clit mm-hmm. and then it, the wings like flip into your like like under your labia. So it's held mm-hmm. in place. And so it's like, so you can have like sex in any really direction. Cause it's being held in place sort of by like gravity oh. and, and dreams. Um, <laughs> but it, it literally, because I need a lot of stimulation to come. Like I just do. And so that was one of the ones where I was like, I have this like really simple thing and it's got like a pretty powerful, like little like buzz on it too. But it, it literally changed sex like i orgasm for the first time because of this toy like wow yeah and is it more rumbly or more buzzy um definitely buzzy it's a little tiny small boy but okay. it's it's just it's just for some reason especially like when like if somebody's on top of you and they're like mm-hmm. kind of like the weight is like pushing it in it's just oh, fucking chef's kiss <laughs> i love it what's your favorite sex position god damn honestly probably like I don't even know what it's called where you're like sitting up and your like legs are across each other. So you can like Uh, look each other in the eye, but then also you could like cuddles. It's like little, it's like a hug, but sex, but cuddles. And also you can have a conversation if you get bored. Cause I do. So (laughs) do you prefer to initiate or for your partner to initiate in the bedroom? Definitely partner. I'm terrible at initiating. I'm so bad at it. It's one of the, it's one of the things I've been working on for so long, but I'm just, I'm awful at initiating sex feel so uncomfortable every single time. And I'm like a fucking sex educator and I still feel awkward about it. <laughs> Are you generally more active or more passive during lovemaking? It depends on where I am that day as a switch. Sometimes I just want to be passive. I don't want to have to make decisions. I don't want to have to fucking think about it. Um, but sometimes I absolutely want to be in control. I absolutely want to be in charge. Um, it just really depends on like my headspace for the day. Mm-hmm. Do you prefer clit stimulation or penetration? Yes. <laughs> it has to be both. That's the Fair. real thing. It's like, it has to be both for me or like it doesn't yeah. work. So like, I don't have one answer. <laughs> <laughs> Do you enjoy G-spot stimulation? Yes. <laughs> I thought multiple orgasms were a myth for a really long time until I found a partner who was just very uh, G-spot interested. And uh, I will never go back. <laughs> <laughs> do you enjoy having your breasts played with weirdly no i mean i shouldn't say weirdly if you're not into that that is totally okay and acceptable but it always surprises me like i don't know why i just consistently go like i have these things i wish they would do i wish they would get in on the party but they just don't so it's just, <laughs> yeah. I, just I just think that's fascinating same <laughs> do you think it's generally easy or challenging for you to orgasm so challenge oh my god are you joking like if like fucking neighbor starts mowing his lawn i'm not gonna come for a week like it's it's <laughs> it's so it's it's honestly so hard to wear like i i carry a lot like i make a lot of jokes but i carry a lot of shame and guilt about like this expectation that i've put on myself to just come when the wind blows and it's mm-hmm. like it takes a concerted amount of effort to get me to come mm. Have you ever faked an orgasm? Oh yeah. Yeah. I used to fake a lot of, or I had a, t- I had, I had a couple of like really awful sexual partners. So I would like fake it. And then I learned 
that I was like, that's not helping anybody. That's not helping the situation. They're not learning. And I was like, and I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, oh my God, that's so much smarter than what I've been doing. But like, nobody had ever like, (laughs) nobody had ever said it. Nobody had ever gone, you know, like you could, you could just not. And then they would know that they're doing a bad job. And I was like, fuck, that's so smart. (laughs) Do you prefer the orgasm from masturbating or from sex with another person? Sex with another person. Definitely. It's more intimate. What's your favorite thing to do to a partner during sexual play? Uh, just like as much closeness as possible. Even if like, you know, we're doing like penetrative sex or whatever. Like I just really like touching them like as much as I can to the point where like, I'm not unwilling to just crawl like all the way on top of you. Like it's like a whole thing. I'm just obsessed with touch. <laughs> What kind of touch do you enjoy receiving most? Either exceptionally hard, like thuddy touch or um, scratchy. Like I love like head scratches or just like getting like my back scratched. Mm -hmm. What are your hard red lines? Nothing stingy. I just, I fucking hate stingy. Like get that shit out of here. Um, So for people who aren't (laughs) familiar with kink terms, there's thuddy and there's stingy. Can you do like a 15 second recap on what that means? Yes. So stingy is think about like getting like flicked by like a rubber band. That's stingy. Now think about getting hit with something heavy. Like, a, I don't know, a, I was going to say like a bat, but even that could be stingy. Um, <laughs> like a rubber mallet. Yeah, like something. a rubber mallet. Like something that has like a like a thud to it. Um, but stingy is like a very different sensation than like slapping is different than getting punched. I don't like to get slapped. I like to get punched is maybe the most succinct way of putting it. Great. Thank you very much. No, no worries. <laughs> so we were talking about hard red lines. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I have like, I have a lot just in terms of sensation. Uh, so like, I hate stingy. I don't do any sort of electro play because I hate it. I really don't like degradation, especially in conversation with just like my body. And also this is fun. I feel like we don't talk about it enough, but I fucking hate oral. I, I will give all day. I love mm. giving oral. Doesn't matter your gender. Doesn't matter your parts. Like, let me please. I hate people going down on me. I cannot stand it. It makes me so uncomfortable. Interesting. So that was one of my next questions. Um, What is it about oral that makes you so uncomfortable or this you don't enjoy it? I think it's because it takes me so long to come. Like, Mm -hmm. honestly, that's it. Like, it's just at some point I start getting in my head about, oh, my God, they've been down there for so long. And like, it's just like, it's like, I'm so sorry. Like, I really am enjoying myself because it feels good. Like, I like it doesn't feel bad. It's just the amount of time that it takes to get me to come. I'm just like, it's been 25 minutes. Like, your jaw has to be like, you have to be in pain. Like, you can just it's fine. You know, (laughs) Um, whereas like giving is like, I just fucking hyper focus on that shit until the job is done. And I'm yeah. just, it's great. Cause I can just turn my brain off and like, there is one task to be done and I will do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, if this is of any use whatsoever, I have always been super, uh, self-conscious about receiving oral because of the whole smell taste, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, and just in the last year, because my partner loves giving oral, and it's something that he hasn't had the opportunity to do with me, because I've always been like, get your head away from that right? area. <laughs> <laughs> so what what we did, what my decision was, it's time to start creating new neural pathways, because right now the neural pathway says, face in crotch equals bad smell, gross. 
So the new neural pathway is head in crotch for 30 seconds feels good. And that's all it's going to be. So he literally has like, he now has an internal 30 second timer. (laughs) I think because at first it was like an actual timer. And then he's like, I don't need that. (laughs) And so he will go down for 30 seconds. And for those 30 seconds, I can feel good because I know that I don't have any other, like, it's not going to go on forever. He has instructions that if it does not smell good, he is to leave. (laughs) And so I trust that if he's down there, it's because he's enjoying it. And, you know, we're making some progress. That's a really good idea that I may actually steal. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I was sitting here going like, no, that, that's got some, that's got some fucking legs on it. All right. All right. Um, all right. So we've talked about oral sex. Um, how do you feel about receiving ass play? I fucking love it so much. I didn't know that I did for like a really long time. And then, uh, one of my partners, I'm not going to out them, but (laughs) they are very, 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 very into it. And I have since come to learn that I enjoy it very, very much as well. (laughs) So, um, when we're talking ass play, are we talking entirely external? Are we talking some internal? Are we talking full on anal sex? Oh, full on anal toys, all sorts of fun shit back there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, how do you feel about giving ass play? I actually really enjoy it as well. Um, I put myself through grad school being a professional dominatrix. This is a fun trivia fact. How did we not end up talking about that? It's, I don't, we, I can come back. It's fine. (laughs) Okay. Uh, but I, so I put myself through grad school being a professional dominatrix. So I got very comfortable with ass play, um, on other people. And then now I have a partner who, again, I will not out which one it is. Uh, but they are very, very into both giving and receiving. And so like, it's really nice because it's like, it's it's like an act of service, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's I don't know, it's it's hot. Really make <laughs> nice noises and stuff. Like it's great. I love it. It's really good. <laughs> Getting all thirsty over here. I'm like, no. Oh. Um, okay. Understanding that everyone's kink scale is completely different, what do you consider the kinkiest thing that you enjoy? I mean, I really, really like heavy impact play, but like that's it's all relative you know what i mean like that's kind of the thing i mean i i have done some pretty intense there's one that involved a canoe paddle that was pretty fun that was a good that was a good (laughs) night i had those bruises for like three weeks um do you get off on the bruises as much as you do i do i do (laughs) it's so like i'm like if i can like and i'll sometimes i'll just specifically ask i'll be like i don't want this scene to like if it is physically safe for you to do so i don't want to leave until i've got at least a few like good bruises Mm -hmm. um because i just i just think it's really hot (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying to like i'm trying to figure out like what's the kinkiest thing i've ever done and i really don't know if i have an answer because i just feel like the umbrella is so broad you know that's fair (laughs) I, well, I did get suspended by a luggage cart on uh on on Sunday on Sunday. Oh wow. Uh there's a, a friend of mine is like really into Shibari and they were kind enough to be like, Yeah, you wanna you wanna be suspended? And I was like, sure. And so I was just hanging off of a luggage cart for a while. That was fun. <laughs> they just wheel you around the conference center. <laughs> they didn't, and then I was like, fuck, I should have asked for that because that's fucking funny as shit. Do you enjoy dirty talk during sexual encounters? yeah but it has to be good dirty talk like that's the thing it's like i have two master's degrees in shakespeare i come with like a very specific understanding of what is and is not good dirty talk like 
I, I, I am unreasonably picky about my dirty talk. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> if it's not in iambic pantameter. <laughs> Listen, I literally have like, there's like one unfulfilled fantasy that I, I, I have never had. I want so desperately, I want to get fucked while doing a scene from Shakespeare. Like I want that with every part of my being. Any like, particular just- scene? I have a couple, but it just really depends like how fucking weird I'm willing to get. Yeah. Um, but I think that the the Kate and Petruchio scene would be really fun. Uh-huh. Um, I also think there's a couple of like Lady Macbeth, Macbeth uh, scenes that would be really good. <laughs> um, and honestly, though, like if so, like if they didn't want to have to like memorize lines, um, just like a chorus speech from like Henry V would just be <laughs> fucking chef's kiss. I've spent a lot of fucking time thinking about how hot it would be to get fucked while doing Shakespeare. It's fine. It's fine. I'm a very particular type of person. Wow. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Have you ever felt a sexual urge that confused you? Yes. A lot. A lot. Like, I mean, all of the kink stuff, like for a really long time, I was like, there's something wrong with me. The weirdest one happened, like, this is just a dumb story, uh, but I have to remind him not to listen to this podcast, but one of my partners has a... See around? I don't think he's around. One of my partners has this antique razor that belonged to his grandfather. And so for his Christmas present, I'm restoring it for him. And so I've been watching uh, like antique, like razor restoration videos on online. And there's like this one guy who just like had this like voice and he was wearing these like latex gloves and he was like cleaning this razor. And I was like, why am I so fucking turned on right now? Like what is happening? I'm not into blood play. I'm not into like super like extreme, like cutting play or anything. And I was just like, oh my God, I want this man to ruin me. Like it was so funny. I was just like, all right, sorry, random YouTuber. Like that was not consensual, but all right. I got a little thirsty there for a second. This won't come up out till after Christmas, if that's okay, good. when you're okay, doing good, it good, for. Good. <laughs> okay. okay, good. <laughs> What's your favorite part of your body? Uh, I really like my mouth. Yeah? It's a good answer, I guess. Cool. <laughs> I have like a nice smile and I can do like a lot of fun stuff with it, so it's fine. <laughs> What's your least favorite part of your body? Oh, probably my stomach. I'm really self-conscious about my body. Like I'm, you know, working through it, but yeah. it's an ongoing battle. Yeah what's something about your current sex life that isn't quite as satisfying as you'd like it to be? I'm absolutely in like an, a desire upswing right now. And both of my partners absolutely are not. Mm. Um, and so I want to come all the time. I want to come every day. Um, and I'm not getting that, which is fine. Uh, but that, that is the thing is I would, I would like to come more with my partners, like much more than I am right now. But I also know, like, give me like two weeks, I'll be like, no, absolutely not. Don't touch me. Ew. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> what belief did you have about sex as a child or teenager that you wish you could go back and correct her on now? Oh, my God. Literally every single thing I believed. Yeah. Every single thing. Like, I, like people have asked me that question before a lot about, like, just being, like, neurodivergent. Like, what would you say to yourself if you if you could? And I'm just like, you're not fucking broken. Mm. There's nothing wrong with you. Like, you are not a bad person. You're not a freak. You're not a sinner. You're not a terrible person for, like, wanting this stuff. You are totally normal. And your needs and your wants and your desires are so valid. And embracing them is going to give you so much power over your sexuality and your body and, and respect for your, like I, 
I don't even know if I could ever go back in time because I, I would just lecture this poor child for like three hours and I'd just be like, what the fuck? I just want to read Nancy Drew. I don't even like sex. Get out of here. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Um, that is it. You do a lot of really interesting things. So please tell people whatever you want them to know about what you do and how to find you. Sure. Um, well, I talk a lot about neurodivergency and kink on all sorts of places on the internet. Um, I go by Katie Soros on all social media. There, I outed myself. Haha, <laughs> it was me the whole time. There's like seven people listening to this going like, I'm pretty sure I know who this bitch is. It's me and Katie Soros. Um, and I also have a podcast. It's called Katie and Eric's Infinite Quest and ADHD Adventure. We talk about life with ADHD and depression and navigating life as neurodivergent adults. We talk a lot about sex and kink. Um, I'm also writing a book about Ooh. sex and neurodivergency and kink. Uh, which will be out hopefully in the next couple of years. We'll see what happens because I have ADHD and writing a book is hard. Um, <laughs> and uh, I have a TikTok. I do Twitch and, and all of that stuff. But the big the big thing to take away is uh, is the podcast because we talk a lot, a lot, a lot about ADHD and sex and intimacy and relationships. And it's, and it's a pretty good time. So, Kate, thank you so much. This conversation has been amazing. Thank you so much for having me. It was seriously an honor to be here. I'm such a fan of this podcast. So it was kind of surreal. I was like, oh, I get to be like one of the people. (laughs) So I was just really excited. Um, But yeah, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts Or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash goodgirls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash goodgirls talk about sex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash goodgirlstalkaboutsex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at goodgirlstalk for more sex-positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Asiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcarry.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life. <laughs>